Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... I'm Paul Gagliardi. I'm a teaching associate professor at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Prof. Paul, it's a, a great honor to be with you. I'm a huge fan of your new book, which we'll talk about in a bit, I hope. But before we get on to that, I wanted to ask you what is currently preoccupying, interesting, retarding, dynamizing you? What's going on right now? Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm very excited to do this. Um, honestly, right now, it is, I'm checking my phone. <laughs> it the is the teller of truth. Whatever yeah, the phone exactly. says is true. Yes, it's true. <laughs> uh, it's currently 22 degrees here in Milwaukee, um, which normally it's negative four. So we're having like this odd spring-like weather uh, that I find very disturbing. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for it, but uh, this sort of like this pervasive fear that I have of of climate change um that i can't avoid it and it's weird being on campus right now with students enjoying this glorious weather um but in the back of my mind uh this this sense of i, I hope this is not the new normal um this is very atypical for the upper midwest of yeah. the united states right and we're talking in fahrenheit terms so it's still well below freezing Mm -hmm. but, well, I was doing I was doing Celsius, so it's like oh, about sixty degrees Fahrenheit right now. Oh, good grief! Yeah. Wow, that is terrible. Uh -huh. uh, thank you yeah. for the translation and explaining it. That is truly, truly terrifying. Uh, yeah. That is not even end of winter in the Upper Midwest. Not even slightly. No. We're very used to a kind of Cohen Brothers Fargo daily existence. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now we're in like a Hollywood Los Angeles movie right now. Yeah, a sort of a, a slightly cold, very early morning in LA in January. Yeah. 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 Where you so go to the beach and it's a bit nipply. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so there's that. Um, like a lot of your guests, I've been thinking about this situation in Palestine and it's very concerning to me. Um, I thinking about politics currently in the United States uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, a number of my friends are in Canada and similar politics happening there. Um, so honestly, like, to keep myself sane, I have to, you know, lean into the joys that my students give me and, and the conversations that we have. Um, I'm teaching a film class right now, and many of my students are very obsessed with the upcoming Oscars. Uh, and they have a uh, informal poll or pool going right now. Um, and so I've politely begged away from it, but I'm very curious about curious to see um, what happens. So are they, yes, uh, I exactly. guess Oppenheimer's looking pretty good after the previous award ceremonies and given yeah. the shunning of Barbie. Mm -hmm. 
And that's and that for them is is interesting because for many of them the Oscars are something that are not part of their culture and and not something they've thought about and now they have this this stated interest in um either Oppenheimer or anger over Barbie. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah. very it's very interesting to see the stakes for them. For them. Uh and Prof, I'm assuming, if you don't mind my asking, when you grew up, watching the Oscars on network television, like watching the Emmys or the Grammys, would have been quite a big thing? It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. My family was not, my family is very working class. Um, my, my dad, I grew up in outside Philadelphia and so my, my dad was very sports oriented and I, right. I adopted, I adopted that ethos uh, to be right. sure. Um, I live and die by how the Philadelphia sports teams are doing. I admit this very, very freely. You have um, to listen to my podcast with Michael Deli Carpini. Who I have not. He, you know, in his office, when I would visit him, there'd be the bat uh, and the Phillies flag mm-hmm. next to it. But He's like you, you know, breathing stops, breathing halts if any of the pro teams do poorly. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. I literally have a, a in my I'm, I'm in my office right now, and I have a, you can't quite see it, the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl championship commemorative hat uh, above my books. So, um, but yeah, so like that was that was like our main cultural interest and we would watch films, but we would watch the Emmys and the Oscars because it was very much the monocultural thing that you did. Uh, Even though my family didn't necessarily watch the best picture nominees of 1986. Um, And so I think that's a, so going back to my students, I think these moments that they have that aren't sports related, um, they're finding new age, not not agency per se, but finding new cultural um, cultural interest all of a sudden, which is something that I, I guess has always been in the back of my head. Um, That's really interesting because I was thinking the shift would be that broadcast television doesn't exist for them. But the point you're making to me is that broadcast television and cable as well would have been more about watching sports for you. Major League Baseball, National Football League, National Hockey League, mm-hmm. uh, National Basketball Association, because Philadelphia is such a sports town. It has these all four major pro sports represented. I guess it doesn't really have a big time college sports team at quite the level of the pro teams. And in fact, you can do an interesting geography of the United States uh, in so many places where there are big-time college sports teams, there often are not big-time pro sports teams. And it's often to do with demography and television rating systems and so on. There are obviously exceptions like Chicago and L.A. and New York. But away Mm -hmm. from the really big population centers, it's often one or the other. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I guess in Philly... You know, a lot of people adopt Penn State as like their big time um, college football team. Uh, And there's a big college basketball tradition uh, in Philly. But 
but yeah, like definitely for me, and I think for a lot of my students, like that intersection with media consumption that's more traditional still falls with um, your, your sports viewing habits yeah. and the other stuff, not so much because I guess you can watch sports on, on Hulu or um, Peacock, but it's still primarily a set time and the set day that you have to watch it. Um, whereas all other kinds of, of television consumption, you can do when you want and however you want it. Um, and I guess I, not to be overly sentimental, but I kind of miss that other form of, of consumption. My wife was just talking to me last night uh, or a couple of days ago about how she was infatuated with this TV show in the early 2000s. Uh, My name is Earl. And uh, <laughs> she would, she would wake up every, like every, I think every Thursday and say, it's my, it's my name is Earl day. And she got very excited about this. But, this but habit. you know what? Amazon and Apple are revisiting that. Uh, it's a bit different because you can watch it at any point in the day, but their new series are coming out once a week. And you know that it's a Wednesday or a Friday or whatever, but you can't watch the entire season in 24 hours, which is what I would like to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I I enjoy it. We watched uh, something recently on Apple TV that was, it was, um, you know, the, the new episode premiered every week. And I miss that. I like that. It gives me something yeah. for, to look forward to. Otherwise, I'm binging all nine seasons of the show. I know, and weekend. it's so stupid. But but the good thing about the new system is that on the one hand, you get the expectation, like your wife had, it's, it's mm. you know, my name is Earl Day. But yeah. it doesn't matter if you're out at a certain hour. You can still watch it. It's true. Um, <laughs> so, so getting back to those working class origins, Prof. Paul, mm -hmm. I don't know much about the profile of the student body at Marquette. Are they first generation in college? Are they middle class? What what sorts of folks are you teaching when you get up in front of them and talk to them about the Oscars? Most of my students, our, our population here skews upper middle class. Um, are we draw population? Our population primarily really is drawn from suburban Milwaukee, suburban Chicago, uh, to an extent, the Twin Cities. Um, that demographic has been changing, I would say, the last four or five years. Uh, this is my sixth year here at Marquette. Um, so I, we are seeing more uh, non-white students, uh, especially uh, Latinx uh, students from Chicago and Milwaukee proper mm -hmm. um, and more international students, a lot more commuter students. We're in, in some ways, we're a very traditional residential campus, um, but there have been inroads made to have commuter students come to come to campus, which is very atypical for Marquette. And, and for me, that's, that's nice because, you know, I, when I started teaching, I started teaching at a community college uh, in Pennsylvania. And those are the students I was familiar with, the commuter students, the yes. second or first generation college students, second generation college students. 
returning students. Um, Mature age, so all, in some cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was weird for me when I started working at a small liberal arts university that that was traditional age students. I had very little contact with them. So I had to relearn, uh, relearn everything. So it's been, it's been surprising uh, the last few years to see our body of students change uh, into something that I'm very familiar with. Very familiar, own. yeah, which is probably tougher for some of your colleagues who may have been at Marquette a long time and are not used to, in inverted commas, non-traditional students. So uh, going back to, uh, you, you're talking about growing up in a working class family again. The book that we're going to focus on a bit today is about the Works Progress Administration, which is until the 60s and the lamentably destroyed Great Society project of Lyndon Baines Johnson, really the, the great intervention by the federal government into working class life in the United States. And one aspect of that in the attempt to counter the Great Depression but also to come up with a new notion of a role for government mm -hmm. was cultural policy that was transformative and incredible in its goals, yes. mm -hmm. if not always its execution. Now, you're the expert on this, not me. Michael Denning called it the cultural front. Right. And there, and there certainly were, you know, extreme leftist madmen like me involved. But share with us, if you would, the remarkable uh, experience that you've had in in tracing um, that contribution to U.S. culture. Wow, that's that's a that's a great that's a great transition. Um, for me, I guess I I was thinking. I've heard other episodes where we asked similar questions and I was, I was trying to think how to answer this. Right. When this bastard comes up with some stupid ass question. <laughs> well, no, but Prof. Paul, the thing to do is think you're a politician and I don't care what the damn guy asks. I've got the answer I wish to give. That is really great advice. I'm going to steal that from here on out. <laughs> um. I guess I'll start at the beginning a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, wrote, I wrote this in the book that this whole project was an, was an accident. I I was interested in the 30s uh, more as a curiosity in, in graduate school. And it was I was kind of interested in the interwar period. I, I was something of a failed historian in my life, in my mind. Uh, <laughs> and I was in this... English department and I, you know, uh, and I, I kind of tying back to my own experience as, as a working mm -hmm. class kid. Right. I'm right. first, I'm first generation college student. Right. No one in my family, my mom went to nursing school. Um, but I was the first to get a bachelor's degree and then a master's and then a doctorate. And, and so like, I always felt like I was kind of like, wandering this journey on my own in in a lot of ways and so when i got to graduate school it was nice to finally be around a, a cadre of people that 
were similar to me, you know, in, in my 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 group and of, of grad students. And anyway, um, but I always was interested in like the working class experience. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, my leftist politics, I, I think I was aware of the Works Progress Administration as as a, a theoretical idea. Um, I couldn't have told you much about it. Mm. And and then once you get that little nugget of information of this is what the WPA was and what its aims were, and then you start unraveling that thread and you find all these all these smaller programs uh, that I had never heard of. Um, and anyway, so I was, I was like kind of wandering for a topic and I found reference to the federal theater project, which I had, had heard of at some point and then reference to, Hey, no one's ever written about the comedies. Right. Cause it's, of, it's Orson Welles and Mercury theater and, Right. Yes. And the, the lost film in Brazil and so on that we hear about. It's mm-hmm. not the comedies, is it? Yeah. No, it's it's yeah. that it's it's Wells and it's you know affording black performers the right to stage plays. But it's it's like a little a little nugget or a footnote in theatrical history mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. And. I was like, well, there we go. Like, you know, no one's written about it. There we go. That's a, that's a dissertation topic. I yeah. can work with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the more I started digging, I went to the Library of Congress. And I think one thing that's daunting and many, I'm sure many scholars have experienced this. You're finding something new and no one's written about it. And so like, there's this kind of terrifying tension in your mind of I can do whatever I want, but I don't have a guidepost for this. Mm. Um, and and I found all these comedies that as I'm digging through the Library of Congress archives are you know about working. And I was like, oh, okay, work. I like that. Um and eventually mm. I started to piece together that the the great conundrum of my book is you have part of the Works Progress Administration, the Federal Theater Project, staging these comedies, and these comedies are dealing with work, but maybe not in the ways we would expect a New Deal program to address work. It's, yes, it's it's work is good and work is wonderful and we all need work, but there's a skepticism about work and the benefits to work uh, for working people. Um, and at some points, kind of positing their other pathways to success that is not just putting your nose to the grindstone and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and working 80 hours a week. It's other people have found these uh, speculative and swindling avenues to find mm-hmm. success. Um, why is that? Why, how did people not you know recognize this? And that's, I guess, both the journey and the kind of general overview of my of my book. Indeed. And, uh, you know, you call it all play and no work. And the point is that you want to show this attempt to emphasize humor and pleasure, but also a great U.S. figure and not restricted to the United States, the con artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. You know, in Latin America would be called the vivo. Uh, So 
Tell us a little bit about the con artist, a great tradition, the guy who can sell me something that I don't need and he doesn't even have to sell. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, you know, the con artist is, I, I think, pretty ubiquitous in all cultures. At some point, somebody is always trying to get one over on somebody else. Um, in the States here, the con artist uh, is it's always been occupied kind of a weird space in that mm, mm-hmm. at times we condemn it. Like the Puritans are, you, you can't be deceptive in anything that you do. Uh, that's an affront to God. Um, and at the same time, you know, out in the, 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 um, uh, the frontier people are like, oh yeah, I, I have land to sell you. Uh, just give me some money. I'll hold on to your money, uh, and I'll send. I'll, I'll get you. I'll get you the the paperwork in a little bit. I've, I've run into some problems. Like I, I think it's that's part of the... uh, constructing large buildings in the United States in the twentieth and twenty first centuries. That's true. Yeah, please buy yeah. this apartment in a building that I haven't built yet that I don't mm-hmm. have the finance for and where the land mm-hmm. is uncertain in terms of its provenance. No. Yes. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. but yeah. You no, know. no, no, no. Um, that might be the partly the business policies of a certain former president here in the United Ooh, States. I don't know who that would be. Gosh. I, uh, yeah, I'm confused. That would be. Jimmy Carter. It's Jimmy yeah, Carter. Yeah, must be. Yeah. yeah. The dude with the PhD in nuclear <laughs> physics. That, that one, mm-hmm. because he was renowned for be that, because he actually didn't really have any peanuts on his farm. We both know this. No, it, he was he was the hustler of hustlers, he as it were. And I, really. um, no, I, I feel as though we've known one another a long time, Prof P, even though we've just met. Mm-hmm. In any event, <laughs> yeah, so the con artist gets a certain admiration and is part of the pioneer frontier whiteness narrative. Mm-hmm. Of the exploitation of native lands. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And becomes part of the American, like American mythos, right? That everybody, like, you know, at a certain point, Melville and Twain, they populate their novels with the Connors character. Yep. Right. Um, and there is like a weird, and part of it too, like, it is also, you know, like a fear of the con, like I said, a fear of the Connors too. Like, we, we want, to have sincere communication, sincere discourse with people. And as the country is changing, like the frontier, you don't know who who is who. In cities, you don't know who is who. Um, but there's like this this tension between we despise the con, but we also kind of respect the con. Hmm. And and by the 30s, and there are variations of how the con artist appears in the novels of Fitzgerald and and films, um, uh, popular films of the 30s. But by the 30s, there's the, that same kind of kind of tension, right? Um, people are impoverished. People are uh, starving. Um and yet, like that con artist in, in the plays I write about in in the book um becomes like a sort of archetypal hero, right? Um that the people understand that the con becomes a a pathway 
outside of traditional working space. And and weirdly, like a con is also work. It's not like you can you can run a very simple confidence scheme and say, I'm so and so, I'm here to collect the money that you you said you would pay my my brother or whatever. But to operate it, it is its own form of labor to operate it effectively. Um, a few years ago when I was, I, I was first hired here, um, I was having a, uh, I was being observed by one of the senior faculty and we were reading the play Top Dog Underdog. And there's, there's mention in the play of doing the three card Monty scam and students didn't know it. So I tried to demonstrate how the three card Monty scam operates. I couldn't do it. <laughs> so there's there's a level of there's this own sense of work in the con itself and and we and in my book I write about two plays that were really popular uh for depression audiences that deal with con artists as the hero and um they're able to outwit society and able to outwit the capitalist state and people can find their security by engaging in a confidence scheme as opposed to getting, you know, clocking in every day, nine to five and finding a different, different sense of security. And stepping back out from the comedies and the con artists for a moment, pardon me, the plurality of listeners are in the U S but the majority is not. And even within the US, not everybody knows everything about the Great Depression. Well, actually, nobody knows everything about the Great Depression. It remains one of the great imponderables of economic history, as you know. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you could trace for us a little bit of the reforms that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Democrats sought to create and the new role for government and where the Federal Theatre Project fits into that story. Because what we're talking about is years and years of incredible horror for working mm. people, and not only working people, but especially them in the United States and in most of a capitalist world, if not all of it, as the Great Depression took hold. Mm. Um, if you watch a film like My Man Godfrey with Bill Powell yeah. and... The, the guys there who live on rubbish tips but have great self-respect and respect for others are called the forgotten men. Mm -hmm. And apart from anything else, this was a crisis of white masculinity along with lots of other things. But there was an answer and part of it was cultural. So could you explain a wee bit about the context of the Depression, the WPA and the Theatre Project? Sure. So... I like how you said no one really knows all of the depression and that's, that's very, very true. We still argue about how effective the new deal was. We still right. argue about right. the causes of the depression. Um, I would say, and th this is my own, my own perspective a little bit. Um, I think we misread the new deal in a lot of ways, like the Americans on the right tend to see it as like a, a communist over overthrow of, of the United States in some capacity. And it wasn't that it was a series of programs that really were concerned with 
it, it, at their root, a, a balancing and restoration of American capitalism that the federal government is going to intervene in the market and not to the extent where there's like socialization or uh, socialized uh, industry um, as, as you would see in, in, in Europe during the 1930s, but um, we're going to like just balance everything out so that the mm-hmm. free market can mm-hmm. gain its footing, so to speak. Right. Right. Um, and, and a lot of the works programs that, and there are, Four, four or five different works programs uh, under the first, what we call the first New Deal, Roosevelt's first four years in office. Um, basically, they they fall into two camps. One is you're giving block grants to private enterprise to hire people. Uh, this is the public works, um, the public works administration. Um, one of the challenges of being a New Deal scholar is there are 78 three-letter acronyms that I have to memorize. And they, my, my nightmare is like a New York Times crossword puzzle clue, which is New Deal organization three letters. And it doesn't help me at all. Or there are, or there are works programs, which are sort of like you give federal agencies the money to hire people, but you don't, they're not specialized in any way, shape or form. So a lot of early public works programs were just hire people off the relief rolls, uh, people that are underemployed and just put them to work no matter what it was. Um, and some of those are really popular, like the Civilian Conservation Corps, which I mentioned my fears over the environment right now, but one of their yeah. primary charges was restoring um, uh, tree space in the center of the country um, as a result of the Dust Bowl and and things like that. Um, But also intervening at the Mississippi to stop it flooding. Yes, yes. Slightly more deleterious medium to long-term impacts. Yes. Celebrated in the river, a a truly great documentary, but nevertheless. But as you say, there, there were things there that were remarkable. In ecological terms. Yeah. 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 And then what they realize is, well, I say they, like the, the Roosevelt Brain Trust realizes right. that we have a glut of workers that are specialized in like what we would call middle class work, white collar work. Um, and as well, it's the a guy like uh, Harry Hopkins is sort of the brainchild of the works progress. Right. 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 And he reasons that we should be specifying and tailoring these work programs to what people are are trained in. Um, and that's sort of the birth of the WPA in 1935, 1936. Um, and going back to the other realization is, as I said, we have a lot of white collar workers that are unemployed. And this is one thing that makes the depression so bad is in panics and economic downturns throughout the 19th century, for instance, in the United States, the people most affected were the working class laborers. Um, it didn't, the panics of the 1870s, 1890s didn't tend to hit middle class labor um, as severely. Um, what happens to the depression is everything basically falls out, uh, out the bottom, so to speak. Um, and there's the call to make a ser- like a call of a, there's a need for these agencies called Federal One, which really aim at labor that is not traditionally thought of as labor either. 
um, Americans, I, I think all of Western societies really place emphasis on the work that we do has to have a tangible outcome uh, and must be physical, right? And Federal One is aiming at giving work to writers and artists and actors and performers and historians. Uh, because Harry Hopkins argues that what people of these very specialized fields do is they give life to people. Uh, they, they provide us something that's uh, not tangible, but gives us a reason to keep on going. Um, and part of the sell to the American public is, you know, these like art and history and theater and literature Give us a reason to keep going. It's not enough to just have uh, food in your belly uh, and shoes on your feet. Like there has to be something more. Um, there's a very famous inci incident where Hopkins is on this whistle stop tour uh, in the Midwest. And I think he's in Iowa. And he is at Iowa State University. He's presenting he these ideas to a gathered crowd and uh, someone in the back yells, well, who's going to pay for all that? That's my thirties, my thirties voice. It's not very good. No, that's good. I, says, like, I like it. I can hear it as, you know, somebody in a Warner brothers gangster movie. <laughs> and they, they can that's, be no higher praise. Thank you. I appreciate that. And most of my accents end up being like, uh, Edward G. Robinson anyway. So they, um, no escape. yeah, a little bit chief Wiggum too. <laughs> um, and, and Hopkins says this person kind of like saying how, who's going to pay for that? He goes, you are, we're all going to pay for this. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a dynamic change in how these work programs are presented to the American populace, uh, that these, these are necessary. These are a different vision of work than we often think of, and they're going to give us something more that's not just a bridge it's not just uh a new paved street it's uh making the american life better and the federal theater project is is one of these programs mm -hmm. um it's also the most controversial program because americans have long had this just as we've had this love-hate relationship with the con artist we've had this very complicated relationship with acting as as labor um the Puritans certainly had their issues with, with acting, um, but we don't consider it work. We consider it something of uh, a facade, but we also spend millions and millions of dollars of our hard-earned money, you know, going to the theater and going to movies and seeing actors themselves. Um, so it was a bit of a harder sell to the American populace uh, than was... Uh, things like uh, the Federal Writers Project, was, which was producing travel guides for, to encourage people to travel uh, as much as possible. That's something tangible. It's something that people can, can yeah. see and feel. Um, so that's yeah, that's a so general in, overview. Sorry. So in part, you're tying the evolution of the theater project to the fact that this is this has become a middle-class, white-collar crisis, white, male, middle-class and educated con, uh, crisis, and not just a proletarian one. But mm. you're also distinguishing what might be deemed truly valuable 
white middle-class cultural production versus what is problematic or questionable, namely mm -hmm. theatre. Have I got yes. that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what um, about the fact that, what about the difference? We mentioned Wells earlier. What about the difference between drama-drama and comedy-drama in all of this? That's a... I think one thing that 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 going back to the sort of the selling of the FTP, mm -hmm. right? um, the person that runs the FTP is a woman named Hallie Flanagan, who, in short, she has this vision for what theater theater should be, right? Um, moving away from like the, the the sort of rigid commercial theater that had dominated. Holly or the dominate Broadway in the 20s and 30s. And she took this these words of Hopkins to heart that we need to give. And, and Hopkins told her allegedly like the Federal Theater Project should be free adult and uncensored, right? And bringing in different voices, different perspectives, and moving away from a sort of traditional conservative view of theater. Um one of the problems of the FTP, though, is people have different ideas of what theater is. And so you have avant-garde theater, the Orson Welles, you know, you know, leftist sort of, of theater of, you know, waiting for lefty and the failed, um, uh, oh, shoot, uh, his, um, oh, I should know the play. Uh, that's going to bother me. Uh, a very famous musical that Wells produced, uh, that, uh, was, was kiboshed by the federal theater project. And it's, I'll think of it in a few minutes. Um, so we have that. And then we have like the, the question of what the audiences want and a question of what commercially trained theater workers are trained to do. And, there's a kind of like just a, a overt tension between between these sides and and i know that answers your question per se but it, it's sort of like the the general context for what's happening um with the federal theater project is it's trying to do everything and it's trying to be so inclusive and i get it i i totally and hallie fling is in a, in a horrible position right because she's supposed to hire out-of-work theater workers. Yeah. Those theater workers have worked on Broadway often. Um, she's trying to do different things with a non-white non theater, non-male-centric theater. And there's a butting of heads and a real tension within the entire program about what they're even supposed to do. And, and then different audiences react to those products very differently. And thinking about these plays, when you read them now, are they funny? Yeah. The prof is laughing and grimacing and looking as if he wished a, a different question had been asked of him. I, I I'm just gonna pass. No, um, <laughs> you, you, I would. 
this is going to be such a cop out answer, but 50 50. There are. Uh, comedy is oftentimes, I think, of all the art forms, the most specific to its time mm, and place, right? And, yeah. And so mm-hmm. what makes someone laugh in 1936 may not make someone laugh in 2024. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so I think, I think in some ways, like there's, there's a loss of, there's a loss of the, the comedic elements. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I study these plays for a long time and I'm still not sure if I always get the jokes, right. There might be a small reference there that, the connotation of the word lands differently for yeah uh, sure 19- well even think of things that often people regard as timeless from that era like the marx brothers there are lots of very specific reference points that we don't get or at least mm-hmm. I don't. yeah yeah i mean the three stooges kind of work because they're hitting each other in the heads with you know wrenches and that's my wife disagrees with me but i think that's funny um but so, yeah, I think that these plays are very culturally specific to the 30s. But then there are moments that I think in, I think narrative points mm. that I think work. Um, there's a there's a play I write about called A Moral Entertainment that uh, basically centers on a group of 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 uh, a theater uh, of oh my God, actors walking around. uh colonial Massachusetts uh, who are starving uh, and they get in trouble with a, a Puritan magistrate or a Puritan leader of a, a town. And they're presented with this offer that either you could give up being an actor and be incorporated into Puritan society or we'll kill you. And most of the Puritan actors are like, yeah, acting sucks. I hate it. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather, um, I'd rather be a tailor than have to play Romeo and Juliet one more time. Mm. Um, to me, that's funny. I, I still think that that works. Um, or a guy pretending to be a bank worker with no banking training whatsoever situation, I think is, is funny, but I like the Marx brothers analogy too. Like you can see the structure of the comedy, but every now and then, like one of Groucho Marx's jokes just don't land because you're like, I don't get that reference. And that's so specific to 1935. Um, so, yeah, but I, I don't know if I can recommend the plays themselves. I'll say that they're not there's there's funnier things out there. And And fair enough. Can you tell us a little bit more about. Hallie Flanagan, because um, this is such an unusual thing for a Mm -hmm. really major public policy anywhere in the world that I can think of to be in the hands of a woman. Mm -hmm. She, She is a fascinating figure to me. And like you said, a very unusual the United States and, and, and elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were other leaders of New Deal programs that were women uh, in the Roosevelt, the various Roosevelt administrations, but it's, it, she and Frances Perkins are probably the two most famous figures. Mm-hmm. And 
she had um she had gone to Grinnell College in Iowa, uh, which was the alma mater of uh Harry Hopkins. Uh so they had that connection to each other. Um she had worked with uh she got she was trained at Harvard um and then uh starts developing she's she's hired i believe at vassar college um and earns a guggenheim uh, uh fellowship to travel to europe to see plays being done in mostly eastern europe uh she travels to russia uh in the 19 1920s 1930s uh she buys a cape in russia that she would wear so part of her general affect uh she has this big red cape that she would wear at all times. So if you f- find photos of Hallie Flanagan in public, she's wearing one or uh, several, one of several capes, I believe. Um, and she pilots this idea of what she later terms living newspaper plays, uh, borrowing heavily from leftist theater uh, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe in the twenties and thirties that um, you're you're addressing directly the the economic struggles of of Americans. Uh, one of her her experimental plays is called "Can You Not Hear Their Voices," um, where you know, like you have you know realistic characters on stage. You have in the background uh, like newspaper headlines to direct the audience that this is happening now, um, and. And she gets the job to be head of the FTP and she's like the right person for the job, right? She, she believes in a different sense of what theater should be. And she understands that theater does not have to be commercial. It does not have to be like lowest common denominator. It doesn't have to be um, the stuff that's being done on Broadway in the thirties. Uh, she, she believes you can challenge audiences that you can give voice to black performers that don't have to do, um, uh, they don't have to do like the stereotypical stuff they have to do in Hollywood at the, at this time. Um, she gives voice to, to women and Latinx populations. And at the same time, she's also trying to be undercut by half the people she's working under the entire time. Um, and she isn't basically a no-win situation, right? Throughout her throughout her tenure, um, but she is also somebody I, I've when I wrote my dissertation, which is the basis for my book, I was like very anti Hallie Flanagan for some reason, and I because I thought I, I thought like she should have adjusted the program to meet the needs of the audience, and now I, I've I've totally turned and I've become a huge Hallie Flanagan stan. <laughs> uh, uh, because I, I think I've I've matured and aged and I've also understood like she's in this, like I said, like this near impossible position. Right. Um, right. Everyone's miserable with her. Like she's either not doing enough leftist yeah. stuff. Yeah. She's not doing enough commercial stuff. The Republicans are sh- saying she's a communist agent. Um, she's being the programs being threatened with you know, budget cuts and outright dis- destruction every few years. Um I don't know how she does it. I really this don't. This is what happens. And, this foreshadows, of course, what happens with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. Mm-hmm. Where on the one hand, you're told to be popular 
and make a mark with ordinary Americans in inverted commas. On the other, you're not allowed to be too commercial because that means why spend public money on something that could be supported by the market. Uh-huh. Um, Prof, you mentioned opening up opportunities to African-Americans, to Latinos, Latinas, and to women. How how does that function? How is that achieved? What does that actually involve? So one one way is structurally the, the FTP and the other arts projects are different. The, the Works Progress Administration, despite trying to really tailor the work, I guess just like because it's trying to tailor the work it's offering to the underemployed or the unemployed, um, it, it's not immune from the general stereotypes of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of work programs, and this is throughout the entire New Deal, a lot of the work programs offered women just reinforce, um, you know, the sort of uh, man as um, uh, man as head of the household, mm. right, as the breadwinner, right, ethos. Um, so women are given sewing projects to work on. They're given, you know, cooking projects to work on. Right. In um, in the South, uh, with a lot of the New Deal, uh, African Americans are basically excluded from any access to to relief work, um, especially with early New Deal programs, and and so the arts projects tend to be more egalitarian in in their structure. Right, um, the Federal Writers Project hires everybody from Saul Bellow to Richard Wright to um, you know, on down the line, like every major writer of the 20th century in America worked on the Federal Writers Project. With, so there's like a, because it's the arts, like you're allowed to have more agency for these these performers. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. recruit, uh, they find plays written by, um, not necessarily written by women or black writers as much as they probably should have, but they're looking for roles that are going to be assignable or um you know hireable for black performers or women performers or to give um um just better roles uh, across the board but that's not to say that these plays are wholly progressive at 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 some level um you know a, one of the plays i write about is called mississippi rainbow which uh is one of the plays that has an all black cast there are no white characters uh, it's a really interesting play in that it's about a, a black man who loses his job <laughs> working on the riverboat on the Mississippi. And he just says, like, instead of working, I'm just going to sit by the river and think of a, a brand, uh, think of my money making idea. And it's popular with black audiences, especially in Chicago, but it's written by a white guy. And a lot of black audiences also see it as like you're just using kind of like racist uh stereotypical dialect for us mm-hmm. um and a lot of black performers at the time were still kind of horrified by the roles they're getting their roles but it, they're in that very awkward space between opportunity and still um and stereotype still showing 
So it's a Mark yeah. Twain notion of black Argo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Prof, um, I've got two more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you in case mm -hmm. there's something you'd like to add or subtract. Yeah? Yeah. Um, to conclude things. So my first of the last two questions is this. This is a very short-lived project, mm -hmm. remarkably productive, incredibly so, given the short shrift it is given. And for people like me, who obviously didn't grow up in the United States, when something ends in 1939, we think it's because of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. But there's something else going on that holds things back, that ends things, that concludes things that's going on in the U.S. So what happens in 1939? Well, in 1939, 1938, 1939, the cycle we have here in the United States, sort of the, the short answer to the long answer, I guess, is my approach here. Um, you know, we Americans, for reasons I don't totally understand, right, we can't ever, except in times of absolute emergency, like 1932, you know, uh, everyone has to be voted out of office. We need a radical shift, right, in our our national politics. 1974. We yes. 74 yes. and 76. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but that can only last for so long. And so like the, the, the GOP, the Republicans make inroads in the midterm elections, right? And they gain power in Congress and they're looking for ways to kind of cut down the New Deal. Right. And the, the Federal Theater Project is, it's low-hanging fruit, I suppose, Right. It's it's something that is an easy target for conservative uh, audiences and the conservative press. And, um, you know, it's it's something so antithetical to what Americans typically support. Right. right? right. Um, and. And it's also like too like. It, one of the accusations made against the Federal Theater Project the FTP throughout its its tenure is uh, it's just a hotbed of communist subversion. And that's true <laughs> to, to a point. Um, it's not as though every play is, you know, having a, a character that looks like Stalin coming on stage and saying, you know, I comrades, you know, it's, there's enough leftist content there that um, the, uh, it, it's going to it's going to attract bad press, and I agree with those. I agree with the politics. I consider myself a leftist, but again, the tension of some of the plays I write about is theater workers being concerned about how radical can we be on stage when we're on the federal dime, and that federal dime can be pulled away from us. Um, and Hallie Flanagan. There's a very there's very famous uh, testimonies that she does or testi testimonies that she does in front of Congress where, um, you know, she basically defends the program to to her you know, metaphorical death, so to speak. But mm. 
it was, it's a natural progression to me, like looking at the history and understanding mm -hmm. all the criticism of it from day one, it was always on a very, it was always going to have a short timeline unless it was radically changed. Yeah. 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 No. Um, wonderfully put and, and tragically so. Yeah. Um, and my last question, Prof, before throwing to you to conclude is, What's on the docket next? This is, imagine that I'm a biologist or an economist and we're considering Prof Gagliardi for his next promotion, for a grant, for being acknowledged as a good guy, whatever it may be. Come on, dude. <laughs> next thing. Um, I'm not sure. What next? What's next for? I'm sorry, next? that's unacceptable. No, we can't have that. Okay, okay, that's fair. Right, um, rewind. Come on. No, no, no. I, I'm at very much a place in my thinking and my interests that there are like five or six things I I want to do, mm, mm -hmm. and, and you know, and I think there's a way to combine some of them. Um, I will, I will give a shout out to my friend, Amy Brady, who has a really great book called ice, a cultural history. Um, and I've been thinking about like the idea of like looking at, cause I grew up playing hockey and I grew up, um, uh, you know, fascinated with ice shows. And I think, I think part of me is going to be transitioned to thinking about the ice show. Right. As as a cultural mm. phenomenon in the 19, 1940s and 1950s. Um, I don't think there's been much, if anything, published on it. And I'm happy to eat my words if that's if that's the case. Um, but I'm always looking for ways. I, my dream somewhere right, is to write a book about about hockey in some capacity, but it doesn't really fit with my my job per se. But um, I love it. Well, there, there were. There were ice skating movies in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. And there's a literature mostly by Canadian sports scholars on mm. hockey. And actually, you know, I, I was lucky enough to record a conversation with uh, Rick Gruneau that was tremendous, you know, who's the co-author of Hockey Night in Canada mm -hmm. and, and other work. And... I think something that brought together um, the ice ballet musical of the 30s and 40s, completely forgotten now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, Don Cherry and <laughs> uh, crazed white masculinity. Yeah. Be incredibly interesting. Incredibly yeah. interesting. And, my part of my like entry was like the ice capades, um, mm -hmm. the ice ballet, ice capades that start in the forties. Like it's it's all these owners of these hockey rinks on the east coast yep. that are looking for something to fill dates. And I'm always very fascinated by that intersection between hypermasculinity and yep. hyperxenophobia. Uh, in the case of Don Cherry, right? And, you know these Swedes and Russians, they can't fight like a true real Canuck. Yeah. But also I used to, queerness, I, queerness on the ice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is huge in the last 40 years of the Olympics at least. Right? Absolutely. 
So I, I, something that's I, I keep coming back to that. And no, that's I'm good. Re- so the, I'm the geologist now on the panel. We've given you mm-hmm. a tick. That's a good next project. That's fine. Okay, good. I like that. But, but seriously, you. I think particularly given that you grew up engaged in that, you understand it from the inside out. Bringing together these cultural forms, the hyper-masculine one and the musical entertainment one and the queerness, this could be utterly fantastic. Yeah, I I keep circling back to that one and we're skating back to that one to keep <laughs> the fun going. Yeah. And, my, and hockey finally, career, my hockey career stopped basically because I, I, I was... Uh, I could only skate backwards so well. And that, that was, I was. You mean a, you couldn't beat them in the alley? That's what you're really telling me. <laughs> I could, I unfortunately could beat them in the alley, but uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a very different time. Yeah, no, and, and a good thing too. And yeah. to, to finish things, are there issues that you'd like to add to what we've discussed? I would say I would say this, and I think really the thing about my book, "All Play No Work," um, that I keep I keep thinking about is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just like just thinking how how we think of work. And I think work is something that's so fundamental to our experiences and our our day to day lives, right? Right. And, um, yeah, I, I was thinking recently that, you know, I had a conversation with my youngest, we were walking around, we were walking the dog and, uh, and I said, we, we can't, we have to go back. I have to, I have to do some work. And this is a Saturday and he, he couldn't process how I had work to do when it was the weekend. This was so antithetical to his understanding of, mm. of the universe. Mm. And, and I'm in, always in this conflict too, because I take, I take pleasure in my work. I take pleasure in doing scholarship. And I take pleasure in, in being interviewed and I take pleasure with like teaching and it's such a foundational part of who I am. And, and, but yet where's that line for where work becomes too much or are there different ways we can think about our own sense of working and work ethic? And I don't have answers to it because I think that's an individual question uh, or maybe a cultural question, right? Um, as we're moving forward and we have, we're starting to have conversations globally about, uh, you know, uh, you know, at what point will AI take over jobs and wh- how does that affect our, our societies and universal income questions that I think we're going to be having the next 10 to 20 years, if not sooner. Um, and I do think we need to both individually and culturally think about what we want and what we value from, from working. And I think people in the thirties were doing that. Mm. And I think we're due for that conversation too. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. The book is great, but uh, also, I feel as I've learned a lot from you in our conversation. So I'm I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much. This was this was a blast. This was a pleasure. Um, I appreciate it. And yeah, next book uh, you'll get the first dibs. Uh, yeah. 